Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Uh, we will do the whole chapter, chapter uh, verse by verse, but we're going to start in verse 19, um, and then we'll close uh, with the first part of chapter 2. Paul is continuing to address the church in Philippi, and he's dealing with them on a lot of different issues as we've been making our way through it. Um, but this morning, he's particularly interested in one of the characteristics of being a Christian is that of humility. And in verse 19, he's going to use Timothy and Ephroditus as examples of Christian humility. Uh, this morning, <clears throat> we will look at hu- not only uh, humility, but the opposite of humility, and that would be pride. Uh, we will look at both Old Testament and New Testament examples of each. But let's begin by looking at Timothy and Aphrodite in verses 19 through 30. So verse 19 says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Now, when we look at um, Timothy as an example, um, I'd like you to turn... I'm going to have you turn quite a bit, actually, this morning. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And um, we're going to pretty much look at uh, the whole doctrine here as it's written to Timothy. Paul considered Timothy his spiritual son in the faith. And it starts out, talking about a little bit what's going on in our world right now. Verse one, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Well, they have. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, which is the opposite of being humble, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness but deny its power. From such people turn away. For of these sorts are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lust, always learning 
and never being able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janice and Jambri resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning of the faith, but they will progress no farther for their folly will be manifested to all as they always was. And now he talks about confronting apostasy. And he says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine. I remember um, Timothy would have been young, as we're gonna read here in a moment, and he did consider him a, a son in the faith. Um, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, and I got underlined here my manner of life. In other words, Paul's personal character we'll see back in Philippians, uh, he talks about um, an example of his own walk with the Lord. And in this case, suffering, love, and perseverance. Persecution, affliction, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. Uh, What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will go worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in all the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood, so here's Timothy, from the time that he was young, he was being brought up knowing the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and in righteousness, and might I add in knowing how to become humble, that a man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped with every good work. Let me just stop and make a comment on um, uh, these verses here. Uh, Verse 10, I have underlined manner of life. In other words, your lifestyle, how you carry yourself, how you conduct yourself. Um, And that he had learned this from childhood. But this is one of the famous um, 3.16. John, everybody knows John 3.16. Well, here's another famous one and a very, very important one. And I just want to touch on it. All scripture, not some, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I know many good Bible teachers, uh, people I respect very highly in the Lord um, that hold to the gap theory in Genesis 1, meaning there's a period of time where it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but they put a gap in there, and instead of Exodus 20 says that God clearly created the heavens and the earth in six days, period. But there's a lot of people 
Uh, and this is where the danger comes. Uh, because of their so-called wisdom or knowledge, uh, they have an attitude of, come on now. You really believe that all this happened? Just think how long it takes for um, a galaxy billions and billions and billions and billions of miles away for the light to get here. How did that happen? And I said, is anything too hard for God? Could not he have had, had that happen all at the same time? And that's exactly what happens. But if you begin to learn on, lean on your intellect or your emotion, well, I don't feel that way. I don't think the Bible should say that. And you allow that to have precedent over what God's word says. I have a saying, it goes something like this. If you believe one thing and the Bible says another thing, you're wrong and the Bible's right. Get over it. <laughs> so where it says here, all scripture is given from, by inspiration of God, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, all of it. In the orig- I might add, in the original writing. And um, because there's different translations that have added to and taken away from. A matter of fact, in Revelation, it says you better not do that. Anybody who adds to or takes away any of the words written in this book, God will add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. So Paul continues to disciple and minister Timothy in First and Second Timothy. Uh, Paul is in chains at this time, writing this epistle. Um, let's go back to Philippians and look at another companion, Aphroditus. And he is in verse 25 through 30. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Aphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your, your messenger and the one who ministers to my needs. Since he was longing for you and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick, almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I would have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him that you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold him in great esteem. I'm gonna stop here and just say, why hold him in great esteem? Because if you walk with Paul and Timothy, he was a humble man. And that's the reason he is to be elevated, and that's what we're going to see when we look at the Lord Jesus himself. Why God exalted Jesus above everything and every living thing created. Verse 30, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. Um, And thinking about this, holding him in high esteem was because he was a a humble man. But don't you think that Paul would have prayed for this guy? 
if he's on his deathbed? I think he did. And the Lord didn't heal him. He did eventually, but not when Paul asked for it. Why do you bring it up? Because, well, it's like Paul's sword in the flesh. He prayed three times. Lord, get this thing out of here. Out. (laughs) I don't like it. Have it go away. And the Lord says, nope. Nope, nope, nope. You need it, Paul. You just got back from heaven. And um, you could get real proud, real easy, talking about it. So I'm going to allow this messenger of Satan, literally a demon. And let me be clear here. Demons cannot possess a born-again Christian. They can oppress you, and they can buffet you, uh, but they cannot possess you. We're told to hold up the, um, when it talks about the armor of God and the shield of faith, what's the shield of faith for? To quench the fiery darts of the devil. Sometimes you, you're getting down on yourself for a sin that you committed a year ago, and, um, and you call yourself a Christian. And um, you go to the Lord and you confess that sin over again, and you know what the Lord says? I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean you don't know what I'm talking about? You're God. Yeah, because I God, I can forget if I want to, and I choose to remember them no more. So the one who is doing all the sitting on your shoulder and talking in your ear is a messenger of Satan, and you need to hold up the shield of faith. Every, and uh, if you need to tell the devil to go take a hike, tell him that God doesn't even remember what you're talking about. You do, and you're pouring it on me to make me feel guilty, and um, I've confessed that sin, and the Lord says he will remember it no more. That's why the mercies of the Lord are new every single morning. Now that's good news, a good place for an amen. You can wake up every day and you got a clean slate and you're gonna blow it. According to Proverbs, it says, on your best day, you're gonna sin in thought, word, or deed. Now that's on your best day. Most of us here probably sin before we got out of bed this morning. You know? And um, But if you confess your sin, that he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You're a chaste virgin in his eyes and um, he's, he's using Aphrodite here as an example of humility. That's what it says above um, verse 25, verse 19, it says Tim, Timothy's example of humility. Um, I want to give you, an, I told you I'd give you Old Testament and New Testament examples of humility. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6 for an example with Isaiah. Picking it up in verse 1, we'll read through verse 7. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Notice it always mentions he in the masculine. 
there is no such thing as female angels, only male. It's always with um, the pronoun he. And one cried to the other and said, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Put yourself in Isaiah's sandals. And he's seeing this incredible, as he's in the very presence of God. What was his response? Then I said, woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphims flew to me having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. What do we have here? We have a man still in his sins, and God does a special thing to take him away by having this angel come and touch his lips with it. What's your point, Dwight? I believe true humility can really only come when we are aware of God's presence or his Holy Spirit being with us, he says, wherever two or three are gathered, I am there. He's here this morning, walking amongst us, because it makes us aware of just how much of a sinner we really are. When we behold the holiness of God, and we have to reflect on who we are, that's humbling. That is extremely humbling. And here's an example of how Isaiah was humbled because he was aware of the presence of God. And whenever you're aware of the presence of God, you're also aware of how unrighteous you are, which brings about a natural characteristic of true humility. And um, I want you to go back to, let's see, is it verse five? Yeah. Well, he was just undone. Paul had founded the church at Philippi, but Ephrodites was jealous of Paul. Paul loved Ephrodites because he had the mind of Christ and Paul could trust him. He called him my brother and my companion in labor and my fellow worker. Paul says he's my fellow soldier. He fights with me. He doesn't stick a knife in my back when I'm away. He doesn't Side with my enemies, he stands shoulder to shoulder with me for the faith. So we have Timothy, we'll be looking at Paul as we close things up in his example of humility. And um, then we have Isaiah as an Old Testament positive example. Uh, What I'd like to do now is switch gears and let's look at some Old Testament examples that go against humility. And to start this out, I want you to turn with me to the book of Jude. It's right before the book of Revelation. So it's the second last 
book in the Bible. It's one chapter long. And we find in Jude, I'm looking at verses um, 8, we'll pick it up, 8 through 11. The context of this is Jude warning against false teachers. And so he's going to name names. So let's pick it up uh, in verse 8. Um, talking about the first verses here about the fallen angels. But in verse 8, likewise, these false teachers, uh, their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority. They speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil, whatever they do not know. And whatever they know, naturally like brute beasts and these things, they corrupt themselves. And now he names names and gives examples. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. We're gonna go look at these men. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So these three men, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, he calls them, um, in verse 13, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars from whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So I'd like to start with Cain and let's go back to Genesis chapter four. To the very first book in the Bible. Okay, what we have here are the two firstborn of Adam and Eve. In verse four it says that Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstlings, or a lamb, of the flock, of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Well, it begs the question, why was he pleased with Abel's and not pleased with Cain's? Because it's a picture. And I believe um, from the beginning, um, the plan of redemption was probably revealed to Adam and Eve. And what we have here is a lamb being offered and his blood being shed, which is, of course, we took communion this morning. Why did we take communion? To remember that Jesus shed his blood. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On the other hand, what most of the New Testament is about, especially Romans, 
is Paul's argument is you can't be saved by works. It's either works or grace, one or the other. You can't have a mixture of both. So what was Cain's offering? The works of his hands. And uh, he took the works of his hands and made them as an offering. And the Lord said, sorry, that's not the picture I want to portray. And um, I don't think Cain had it figured out. It says his countenance fell. He was probably coming up like this. You're going to love this, Lord. And he says, I don't want it. And when it says his countenance fell, he went from this to this. And anyway, it bothered him because the Lord, I think, it says he became very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fell? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, then sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. Just dwell on that scripture. The enemy wants to take you out. What does it say about our enemy? He has come to kill, steal, and destroy. Especially if you're a born-again Christian. Even more so if you're vocal about your faith. Um, its desire is for you, but you should rule, rule over it. So now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. He killed him because he was jealous. And, um, and the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I got a question for you. Are you your brother's keeper? Answer, absolutely. That's why we have hidden charity. That's one of the reasons. And um, let's just take this down a little bit farther, go to 16, because people, I've had people ask me this question. And then it says, um, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, the east of Eden, and then it says, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Well, the question that I get, especially if you look at verse 25, it says that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. So people are confused. They said, well, there was Cain and Abel, and then it says they, then there was Seth. So the question is, where, if that's the case, then where did Cain get a wife if they were the only people on the planet? And the answer to that question is, I I would tell you if I was able. (laughs) Like that one? (laughs) Obviously, they didn't mention the girls that were born from Adam and Eve. It's the only answer that you can, can be given here. So where did Cain get his wife? Married his sister. And that's how the earth was populated. When you get to chapter five, you have the genealogy beginning with Adam and ending with Noah. We talked a little bit about that at men's prayer. So um, also, 
I want to look. Okay, we've done that. Let's go. No, you don't have to go. I'll go back to uh, Jude. You stay right here, and I'll be right back after I get back going to Jude. And it says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Okay, we followed Cain. What was Cain? Well, he was a murderer who was jealous and um, humble people uh, should not be jealous of what other people have. He was. And then it says, and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. So who is Balaam? Let's look at Numbers chapter 22, and I'll introduce you to him. Numbers chapter 22, picking it up. Well, I need to read um, up to a certain point here so you get a feel for what's going on. Let me, let me lay the background here. Uh, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They've defeated everybody who's come against them. They've been victorious in every single battle. And there was only one more nation that they had to conquer before they could enter into the promised land. And they moved and camped in the plains of Moab. Moab would be by the Jordan River. And so with that much of a background, then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab. Now we're talking two million strong uh, with women and children. I think this was 160,000 uh, six, men or something like that. But altogether with the women and children, there were two million people uh, on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that Israel had done to the Amorites. And the word was out to the surrounding countries, stay away from these Israelites they take out anything that gets in their way. And now Moab is in the way of them entering into the promised land. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because there were many, and Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moses said to the elders of Midian, now this country will lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zephor, was king of the Moabites at the time. Then he sent to Balaam. Balaam is sort of an enigma. The son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him saying, look, come. Um, look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are setting next to me. We're next in line. Therefore, please come at once and curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that, um, that whom you Bless is blessed, and whom you curse is cursed. So evidently, um, 
some refer to him as a, a prophet, some debate that. Um, but the fact of the matter is who he blessed was blessed and who he cursed was cursed. And as far as um, um, Balak is concerned, he's the only hope we have. So he has his men, verse seven, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand. In other words, he's for hire. There was an actual fee if you wanted Balaam to curse or bless. So he sent with them the diviner's fee and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zephor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt to cover the face of the earth. Come now and curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Is that clear enough? Okay, because he's gonna contradict himself in just a second here. But it's clear here, the Lord says, no. You will not go with him, and you will not curse by people whom I have blessed. So, Balaam rose in the morning, and he said to the prince of Balak, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. And then Balak said, princes more numerous, more honorable than they, um, to impress him. They came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zephor, please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I certainly will honor you greatly and I will do whatever you want. Uh, Therefore, please come and curse these people for me. Then Balaam answered and said to to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, hint, hint, hint. That's what this is here. They ran, remember what it said in Jude? They they, um, um, ran for money like Balak did. In other words, he's, he's willing to sell out. Uh, therefore, uh, I could not go beyond what the word of the Lord has told me no more or no less. Well, the Lord has already told him, no. But he's good. He, what do you want? How much money do you want? Oh, money, hmm, money. How much money? However much you want. And so at this point, he says, I'll tell you what, you guys stay the night and I'll go talk to the Lord again and see what he has to say, maybe he's changed his mind. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men come and call to you, rise and go with them, but only the words which I speak to you, that shall he do. He's already said no. So what's going on here? He knows his heart. He knows that um, financial gain is more important to him than being obedient to the Lord. 
So what we have here is a test. See what he's going to do. He knows that God already said no. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, went with the, the princes of, of Moab, and then God's anger was aroused because he went. See, it's a test. See, well, let's see if he'll do it or not. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him, and he was riding on his donkey. This is Balaam, or um, yeah, Balaam, and his two servants with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing away with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside on his way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey because he couldn't see the angel with the sword drawn to turn him back on the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with the wall on one side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed himself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall and he was and he struck her again. And then the angel of the Lord uh, went further and stood at a narrow passage where there was no way to the right or to the left hand. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with the staff. Now this is my, some of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and the donkey said to Balaam, what have I done to you? You have struck me these three times. And this is what's even funnier, Balaam talks back to the donkey. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there was a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am, not, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Uh, was I ever disposed to do this to you? And here's, here's my funny, <laughs> he goes, no. He's <laughs> having a conversation with Mr. Ed here, you know. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a sword drawn in his hand and his head bowed and he fell flat on his face. The point is that Judah's making is as servants of God, which is what Balaam was supposed to be, when push came to shove or money came to obedience, Balaam was not humble. He did not receive the word of the Lord. In order to receive the word of the Lord, you have to be humble. If you're proud, you will say, oh, well, that's what you think, but that's not what I think. And you can have an attitude about it, and there's a pride issue that comes in, that you know more, or you want more, as in Balaam's case. Woe to them, for they've gone in the way of Cain, murder, Um. The last one is Korah. It says, and the rebellion of Korah. And for that, let's look at, um, um, we need to look at um, Numbers chapter 16. So just go a couple pages back and uh, we'll talk a little bit about Korah. I wanna read the first three verses 
of Numbers chapter 16, verses one through three for starters. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abram, the son of Eliab, and the sons of Peleth, the son of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the Congress, men of renown. And they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourself. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. And then he says to Moses, why then do you exalt yourself? You're you're exalting yourself above the congregation of the Lord. And um, you're just being proud, Moses. Well, the answer to that is, no, he's not. Go back to... um, Numbers chapter 12, which is just a couple pages back. And I want to point out verse three concerning Moses. Now the man Moses was very humble. Catch this, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Then what does this say? that there wasn't any man more humble than Moses in all the world. Yet what were they accusing him of? Oh, you're just, because you're leading a group of people here, uh, you're all puffed up and, and um, you're exalting yourself. No, he's not. God picked him because he was the humblest man on the earth to lead the people out. I'm gonna follow this up um, you can turn there if you want to. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 26 to 29. A prerequisite to be, I think, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm reading verse chapter one of Corinthians 26 to 29. For you see your calling, brethren, that they're not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, Not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. He wants to get the glory. When the Lord first called Moses at the burning bush and told him he's gonna be the deliverer, he says, I can't do that. I'm slow of tongue and speech, I can't talk. And so you gotta pick somebody else, pick Aaron, he's a good speaker. He says, "I'll, I'll put my words in your mouth, Moses. You don't have to worry about that. But um, my point as a positive is that Moses truly was the humblest man and he was the one that God chose to lead his people all the way to this 
exact place. So here's a very positive example. On the other side of that is the worst example of humility and the best example of pride. And we need to go to the book of Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. And we have the fall of Lucifer from heaven. It's also recorded in a different way in Ezekiel, but I chose the one from Isaiah uh, because we call it the five eyes here. Let's pick it up in verse nine of chapter 14. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. And they all speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we are? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and the worms cover you. And then the question, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? Well, the answer is, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And here we have this picture of him. And it goes on to say, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, the lowest parts of the pit. And those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the devil, the man who made the earth tremble, who shook nations, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? The sin of pride. Interesting that the middle letter for pride is what? I. Interesting that the middle letter for sin is I. The opposite of humility is pride. And um, we have good examples like Isaiah, and then we have the worst example um, with Lucifer and his fallen angels. Let's go back to Philippians chapter two. We've read the end of the book. If Satan is the worst example for pride, then Jesus is a great example of true humility. Now we're gonna go back to verse one, and we'll begin to close that up here. Philippians two, verse one. Therefore, um, the title above it is Paul's Exhortation to Humility. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affliction, affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, 
being of one accord with one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, lest each esteem other better than himself. Boy, that's a tough one. Why? Because we love ourselves. We're to love our neighbor as what? As ourselves. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. And then I have for a subtitle here, Jesus Christ's example of humility. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Notice verse seven. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, as Eric sang it in the song, I thought, boy, I missed that one. That What a great example. He's the one that got down and washed the disciples' feet. That was the servant's job. And yet, um, he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Just as Moses was exalted uh, because he was so the humblest man in the world, now that the Lord became a servant, Therefore, God will exalt him and give him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that everyone's tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, that's concerning Jesus. Then we have another therefore for you and I. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my present only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault, and in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our country has never been more crooked and perverse than it is today. Weird place for an amen, but I'll ask for one anyway. You all know it's true, and it's only getting worse. Holding fast to the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labor in vain. This is for us. But then Paul speaks in verses 17 and 18 about himself. He says, yes, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. On the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For this reason, uh, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So how do we do all this? 
I want to end this morning by looking at Matthew chapter 11. And we'll pick it up at verse 25. (laughs) My dad used to kid me, and I didn't know it was a Willie Nelson song. And he says, you know, son, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect. <laughs> He's, it's a doble thing. And, but I, Judy Googled it, and she said, I think that's a song. And sure enough, um, Woody Gut, not Woody Guthrie, um, um, who's the guy with the ponytails? Country Rusty Singer. Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson. He's got a song, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect. I get up every morning and I'm better looking than I was the day before. (laughs) So how do we go about doing with the Lord what Paul is trying to get across to the Philippians? Remember, they're baby Christians. How How should we respond in our character? What should we be like? Well, let this mind be in you that was also in me. We read here in verse 25 of chapter 11. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, I would say proud, and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son will to reveal it. Here is his nature. Come to me. And this is a closing invitation that if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, Here is the Lord himself telling you what to do and how to do it in a very childlike faith. No man can come to the Father unless he comes by me. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I'm gentle, lowly, that'd be another word for humble, in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. How do we come into this place? We put on the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? We just read it right here. If you want to be used and have have it be counted for, then you don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You do it in secret. And... um, and that is the very nature of, of the Lord, becoming like him. We're making our way through the book of Philippians. Paul is giving a very practical Bible study on what Christians should act like in their character. How? Be humble. And I'll leave it at that. Let's say amen. Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And I'm always amazed, Lord, as we go through your word, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, that there really is no issue that you don't touch on and cover. This morning, it was simple as
um, learning that your word tells us that we are to walk humbly before you. As we sang in the first song, if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then you will lift us up. And so, Lord, um, help us be conscious, like Isaiah, that we're sinners saved by grace. Help us, Lord, be aware of your presence, that we can uh, have a true humility, seeing your holiness and knowing our unrighteousness. And yet you did the great exchange when you died on the cross and you took our sin upon yourself and you gave us your righteousness. And it's humbling, Lord, and we're grateful. And we thank you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.